talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Lurskin is on the board. We're back in class today. I hope no one coughs or they may send everyone home. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, nobody coughed. Nobody. Everybody gets sent home. There's that guy. Get him out. Get him out. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board and in the newsroom watching the world spin around uh, is Diana Weeks and Dave Wooder. They'll be joining us around the big round table coming up after the 4.30 news. Uh, love for you to be a part of that. Feel free. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221 star 9900 uh, on your cell. Cadillac Bill has hosted his own show on Cable 14 since uh, 2013. Uh, it's available on YouTube, seen all over the place. Supporting local musicians that make Hamilton home, uh, Bill has released a new DVD featuring some of the great performances from his show, including Ginger St. James. I love her. Uh, teenage Head, Jack Peddler, Laura Cole, Bill's own band. And the DVD is being distributed through local businesses, Dr. Disc, Revolution Records, Into the Abyss, Where, head, uh, where Heads Meet, and True Hamiltonian, and can be ordered for home delivery or computer download at CadillacBill at Hotmail.com. Joining us, Cadillac Bill. Thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. <laughs> uh, good to talk to you. I don't think we've ever talked before. I don't think we have ever met. Uh, tell us about uh, your uh, involvement in the Hamilton music industry and what you have seen over the years with your show. Uh, what are your thoughts on well, Hamilton um, as a music city? <laughs> I've... Uh... Oh, it's basically, I think it's the uh, capital of Canada as far as music goes. A lot of uh, the great uh, bands and even record producers have come out of Hamilton. So Hamilton has had a vibrant music scene going right back since the 1930s. Um, But when I started doing my TV show, my, my TV show wasn't necessarily about music, but I did have a lot of bands on. And I filmed a lot of bands, so I've got a lot of great footage of all these bands. And that's kind of uh, when I thought, you know, doing all this COVID thing, and all, all these bands are all stuck at home. They, they're not playing. They're not making any money. Mm. So I figured, I'm going to make DVDs and try to sell them and uh, give the bands half the money. So what has the response been like? Um good it's uh you know we're selling a bunch and uh you know i also wasn't really sure if there's a big market for dvds anymore right Um, so i'm kind of finding that out if that's the case or if that's not the case but they are selling and uh the good thing about these dvds is they the the collector's items The, the cover is really slick they're local. You can only get these DVDs here in Hamilton. They're not like on eBay or you can't see the footage on on Netflix or anything like that. So literally you can only see the, these wonderful live performances of these local bands on these DVDs. That's it. So, uh, so, when, when, so, when, so when and where were these performances recorded? Uh, over the period of my TV show. So for, so, for example, with the Ginger, St. James, and the Grinders, that was from about 2014 to 2019. So there's about uh, six different shows on that DVD. So there's a, they're all about sort of 50 minutes long, each DVD. So with Ginger, there's a, you know, several shows, about 20 of her songs. And uh, Jack, the, the Jack Peddler DVD is actually Jack Peddler on the Cadillac Bill show and him playing live where he does his wonderful songs. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but Jack Peddler was actually a front man of bands where he yeah. wrote some of the craziest, wildest songs. Uh, so I got footage of that. And, and then, of course, him talking about Aliens 
for that <laughs> DVD. <laughs> then the Laura Cole is two shows she did uh, at Super Crawl in 2015, I think it was, and then at, at the Mule Spinner in 2019. And uh, then the Teenage Head stuff, uh, I did a whole episode about Teenage Head a few years ago, and I got some people to, uh, hey, do you have any live footage of Teenage Head? So they sent me their live footage, and uh, it's terrific. It's like, uh, in fact, one of the shows at the end of the DVD is literally two months before uh, Frankie Venom died. Mm. So the entire DVD is with Teenage Head and Frankie um, and from 2001 to 2008. So how are you, uh, obviously this DVD of local performers and such, uh, what are you hoping for getting out of this pandemic? What are you going to see, hope we're going to see going out the other side of this? <laughs> well, everything getting back to normal someday. I, I mean, mm. so people can actually, so these bands can all start, you know, doing what they do, which is what they do the best. They perform, they, they're, and also for the audience, the audience are all, stuck not seeing the bands and the bands aren't playing so i figured putting out dvds this way people can buy the dvds money goes to the bands and people can now uh, have the dvds at home so it's so, so kind of like watching the bands at home Cadillac Bill is with us. Cadillac Bill and the Creeping Bent, host of the Cadillac Bill Show and DVD collection put together of some of the great uh, Hamilton artists that uh, he has recorded over the years. And you can find it at Dr. Dis Revolution Records, Into the Abyss, Where Heads Meet, and True Hamiltonian. Cadillac Bill, thanks for the time. Good luck with this, and keep promoting right, Hamilton music. They're only $12 plus tax, and if somebody wants to uh, just uh, send me an email, I'll mail them. It's uh, Cadillac Bill at hotmail.com. So All they, right, they Cadillac Bill stores, at. Or they send me an email. I'll mail Cadillac them. Bill at hotmail.com. That's Cadillac Bill at hotmail.com. Thank you very much. Take care. Be well. Good luck with this. Thank you, Scott. Thanks a lot. You might remember uh, last week we had Tasha Carradine on uh, from the National Post in an article that she had written. And, uh, you know, Tasha and I normally agree, and we agreed on certain things and disagreed on others. Uh, but I, I, I certainly uh, congratulate Tasha for uh, putting herself out there and expressing her opinion only to be beaten uh, for uh, the article that she has written. So introducing you to, uh, again, Tasha Carradine, Principal at Navigator Lecture with the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, and is with us now. Tasha, thanks for the time. I hope you're well and, and upright and everything is good. Everything is good, Scott. Thank you. All right. The first piece was uh, the unvaccinated. This is the headline. The unvaccinated must be deterred from harming others. Uh, let's talk about that and what your point was with the article. Well, the point was um, that we should respect vaccine mandates. I was arguing that we need to find a way between the demonization that the prime minister did when he called people racist and sexist um, and the accommodation, which the conservatives were proposing, Aaron O'Toole was saying we should accommodate. Um, and my point was simply that it is not a point where accommodation is not an option. We need to encourage people to get vaccines and we need to also ensure that people who are making the choice, the socially responsible choice, as I said, you know, we're, we are all in this together and we have to pull together. And if we do not, then we will be continuing to be, you know, stuck in like stuck in my house talking to you. Um, and uh, the, but the, it's not, there's no point in, in using the kind of inflammatory rhetoric. So I was saying that, you know, middle position is simply look, Yes, vaccine mandates do work. Um, we've seen upticks in vaccination. We should essentially continue to maintain those mandates and aim for you know vaccination. And that is also the morally responsible thing to do is to get a vaccine, not for you, but for everyone around you. And especially our hospital workers and people who can't access health care, which is a growing problem as the ICUs fill up with COVID patients. So that was my point. So, and I mean, you think so I basically your, your point is... <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> you were for mandatory mandatory vaccination, right? Was the point that you were making? Well, I'm I'm not I'm not saying stick a needle on somebody's arm. No, they can choose, yes. but they will be restricted in the other choices they can make. Yes. Yeah. So that was my point. Okay. So um, so yeah. what was the response from the readers? What did you hear back? Well, there was a lot of negative response. I had some some people agreeing with me, but. It was basically an avalanche of mail, um, some really downright hateful. I had death threats against me and my family. Um, you know, oh, when I see man. your brain splattered against your wall, calling me all sorts of names that you call women that you don't like. Uh, it went on and on. And, you know, I uh, I have a thick skin. I've been criticized for what I've written before. Um, but this was a lot. It was a lot. So I spoke to my editor and I said, you know, especially about the death threats, I said, I think you should know because I haven't gotten those in years. Yeah. Um, but anything. Mm-hmm. So you should know about this. And they do report those. So that was taken care of. But then he said, well, we're, we're continuing to pursue this issue. Would, you know, maybe write something following up. I said, yeah, actually, I think I'd like to, because I think that really the issue now is about civil debate and how can we agree to disagree without, you know, threatening to, to, to smear someone's brains on their walls. <laughs> and so I wrote a second piece to follow up. And the response to that was quite different. Uh, I dared to write about vaccination and I paid dearly for it is the article in the National Post. All right, sum this one up for us. What happened? Okay, first I'll say too, I don't pick these headlines. I'll just say uh, Post picks the headlines. Yes. And sometimes they are, you know, uh, more out there than others. But the piece was essentially about what had happened. Um, I stuck to my original position and said, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I, I still maintain what I wrote. But I would like to emphasize the need to be able to agree to disagree in a civil manner. And this is not how we shall be behaving. This, again, goes to the whole point of how divisive this issue has become politically, too. It's being used as a wedge by both parties. And that is totally irresponsible. And we have to stop that. And if the legacy of the pandemic can be anything, it is that maybe we'll reach peak toxic and realize we shouldn't do this. So I wrote that. And the response to that, I've had hundreds of emails now, like hundreds. I'm trying to answer them all because I do answer. And um, I've waited through, I was up last night till, I don't know, 1130, (laughs) waiting through the last batch. Um, But there's still more, mostly positive this time. Um, Some still negative, but the negative ones were respectful overall. And um, I, you know, I thank my readers, even if they disagree, I sent them notes saying, thank you very much for disagreeing in in a respectful way. I really appreciate it. Thank you for, you know, for reading and for reading uh, the post. Um, you know, it's funny how you tried to go into a gray area from one side of the agreement to the other and you got chastised. Um, and, and really there's lots of people who have the same feelings as you do, but have different degrees of response to it. And it seems with this argument, and again, you said quite rightly, and we've said, we've said so on this show many times, we have lost the ability to disagree or agree to disagree. We've lost the ability to debate, to debate. You're either on that side way over there and, or on the other side way over there. And this is another example, whether you're on the one team or the other, or you're out. Where is this going? How do we correct this? Because this is exactly what Donald Trump and U.S. politics were all about just a few years ago. Uh, there is no common ground. It's you're either on this side or the other. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I mean, with Donald Trump, the issues initially were, were different, but um, anti-vaccination or, uh, you know, vaccine, you know, anti-vaccine mandates, anti. And we, we see the, the statistics. It's divisive politics. It's divisive politics. Yes. Yeah. 50 percent of people who are anti-vaccination, it's either because they um, don't agree that so the government should tell them what to do uh, or they don't want to put something that they don't like in their body. But they basically it's, it comes from a rights perspective that so they say I shouldn't be forced to do this. So about half the people are on that side. And, and if it, that's their rationale. So, you're, you know, this has been politicized for that reason, because obviously um, within the conservative movement slash Republican or Trump party, I won't even call it the Republican party anymore. You have a lot of people who rightly believe in liberty and believe in freedom and small government or less government or even no government in some cases. But the point is that's being harnessed. And that is really unfortunate. Um, you're seeing harnessing on the left too, of a lot of people who, you know, just, they don't trust science. There's this whole anti-science thing of like, we can't trust science. And instead I will believe that, you know, my grandma's advice on Facebook, that if I do X and I have natural immunity, whatever, I'll be fine. And this kind of thing, and from a more of a left of center, I will say perspective in some cases is anti, you know, anti-modern medicine or whatever you have it. So that's being harnessed too a bit. 
but by the left, but it's more, um, I'm seeing that, you know, the, the militant stuff is coming from people who don't want government intervention. And as a conservative, that saddens me because to your point, you know, I think being against a big government is not being against all government. And there are times in history, like this is a once in a hundred years event, thank goodness that we're living through it's exceptional circumstances. This is not, you know, no one's going to be wearing masks uh, in five years, uh, maybe hopefully in two years or one year of COVID is properly, you know, we have treatments, we do have more treatments coming online. We have vaccines that are being tailored to the Omicron variant, other things. Hopefully this will be a thing of the past in, you know, the near future. And so it's not a big conspiracy to, to have government suddenly take advantage and take over everyone's life, but it's being, so to your point, if everyone just got off social media for five minutes, maybe that or five days, <laughs> maybe we could cool the temperature and then have more of a rational conversation. Tasha, congratulations to you. Good for you for uh, writing both these pieces and standing up for what you uh, believe in. There's a lot of resistance in some directions in the media, and we certainly see it. Tasha, thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Tasha Carradine, Principal at Navigator Lecture with the Maxwell School of Public Policy, McGill University. Interesting stories coming out of the U.S. yesterday. The rollout of their uh, 5G technology has hit a snag late in the game and has some significant issues regarding air travel. To talk more about all of this, Keith Mackey is with us. Mackey International, he's an aviation expert and here now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott, and you. Good. So far, so good. Uh, what is the concern with 5G and, and airliners? Uh, well, it isn't a, a recent problem. The problem has been there all along. Just no one's wanted to deal with it. So now the rubber meets the road and we have to deal with it. Let's so, explain a little bit about what it is. Yeah. Uh, 5G just stands for the fifth generation of cell phone technology. And it provides a lot more speed and capacity than the former 3G or 4G networks did. It operates at a much higher frequency in order to give you the fast speed and high capacity. And unfortunately, to do this, it operates very close to the same frequencies as are used by radio or radar altimeters in airplanes. Hmm. So we've got a real uh, uh, match here going on between the cell phone operators and the airlines. Now, it seems that uh, the way the radio altimeter system is designed and it's been around for many many years it's used generally below 2,000 feet and generally in bad weather when airplanes have to know exactly how high they are so the automatic landing systems can properly flare the airplane put it on the ground in the right position and do all those things that make the schedule reliable now much more so than it was before we had radio altimeters and had to rely on barometric altimeters. So anything that disrupts this is going to really disturb airline capacity. And in addition, these same systems are used by corporate aircraft, charter aircraft, uh, emergency rescue service helicopters that might land near highways or hospitals or things like this, and the military. So it's a pretty serious situation. Is now, this just in Canada or the, or sorry, just in the United States or Canada and other parts of the world? Good question, as usual. And also, as usual, Transport Canada has been out ahead of this a little bit. Hmm. So they've done some things that the U.S. hasn't. In the U.S., the problem is the government auctioned off what we call the C-band, which is uh, the band that's also used by radio altimeters, for about $70 billion to AT&T and to Verizon. And that's what the fuss is all about. Hmm. Now, in Canada, we're using a, a frequency below this. We're using about 3.7 gigahertz maximum in Canada, whereas in the U.S., for the techies, the radio altimeters run between 4.2 and 4.4 gigahertz, right smack in the middle of that C-band. So in Canada... We've taken some precautions. We've set up exclusion zones near airports and runways where the uh, 5G transmitters won't exist. And there's also a national program to tilt the antennas on the ground downward so that they won't be pointing up at airplanes. Is that and a reliable solution, Keith? Is that a reliable Pardon solution? Me? Is that a reliable solution or a Band-Aid? Well, time will tell. 
it's working at the moment. Uh, so far, so good. It's certainly not the uh, problem that we have here in the U.S., where that C-band is going to uh, really be the issue. Uh, in the U.S., T-Mobile, for example, uses 3.7, as do the Canadians, and uh, so far that's been no problem. The problem is that the lower the frequency, the slower and the lower the capacity of the cell phone signals. Right. Eventually, the plan is to go up to from 4 gigahertz to 24 to 25 gigahertz, which will be kind of like a fire hose. You won't need the cable any longer. Right. It'll really be fast, but hopefully that's a ways away, and at least it's away from the frequencies of the radio altimeters. Uh, so the airlines... Now, Go ahead. Uh, what we're doing now in the United States is we're, we're setting airports, we're marking the airports where the FAA thinks this might be a problem. And uh, Verizon and AT&T have agreed to not service those areas with strong transmitters until this is all resolved. The FAA is testing different airplanes to see which ones are more tolerant of the 5G signals. And thus far, most of the older Boeing airplanes have done pretty well. But the 777 and the 787 are having problems. A lot of those airplanes are used for cargo as well. So we're dealing with not only passenger disruption, but cargo disruption. So this has the potential of being a real disaster for the economy and for schedules if it isn't resolved. So both the uh, FCC and the FAA really have their hands full at the moment. Keith Mackey with us, Mackey International Aviation Expert, talking about rolling out 5G in the U.S. and how it has interfered with airline travel as they look for a solution. All safe uh, between now and then, though, Keith? Are you confident we're safe? Well, we're not using the system yet, so we should be safe. Yeah. All right, Keith, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You be well. You take care, Scott. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what's your take on all of this? 5G meets the airline industry. Well, I mean, we've known about the potential for there to be a problem for a very long time. The truth of the matter is, and we have all experienced this, you know, when you have walkie-talkies and they conflict with each other because they're all operating on the same frequency or the same channel. That's the problem here is that the frequency that is used by the radio altimeter in some aircraft, including the Boeing 777, uh, is at a similar frequency to the C-band 5, 5G uh, wireless that a lot of telecommunications companies want to start rolling out, specifically AT&T and Verizon, want to flip the switch on those services very soon in the U.S. But now, uh, apparently, uh, they have not sort of figured out, normally when they're flying at altitude, it's not a problem. It is a problem when they're approaching the airport. If the weather is lousy, you need that radio altimeter to tell you how far above the ground you are. And that information feeds into the auto landing systems. If you don't have it, you can't fly when the weather is iffy. So airlines, of course, are very concerned. They're calling on the government in the U.S. to figure this out. Um, and, uh, and of course, now airlines around the world are starting to cancel flights, basically saying, if they flip these services on in the U.S., we can't guarantee that we can fly into some American airport safely. Something's got to give. So, you know, it's it's frightening, but it's also a sign that the system works. We recognize that there's potential for conflict. And before just flying planes without even considering what the impact is, uh, people are saying, no, we're going to stop this before there's an accident. So why are we just talking about it now? Why, you know, if we saw this coming, and that's what Keith Mackey said, is that they've known this for a long time. I think the airlines are actually blaming uh, the government for, for dragging their feet on this. Apparently, this isn't an issue in Canada at this point. So uh, who who's dropped the ball here? Well, you know, normally, this is why we have regulatory agencies. This is why there's the FAA to govern the aviation industry in the U.S. This is why we have the FCC to govern telecommunications industry in the U.S. And in the ideal world, they would talk to each other. It's also a case, so, and that clearly did not happen up until now. Uh, also, it's a tale kind of of two cities or more like 40-plus countries. This technology has already been rolled out safely in 40 other countries around the world, no problem at all. Because in those cases, all of the regulatory agencies, aviation, telecommunications, technology, they all talk to each other, governments were involved, 
And they all made arrangements. They said, okay, around airports, we're going to do certain things to minimize the potential for, for conflict. We're going to turn down the power of those 5G towers so that they don't send out too, too much radiation, so they don't get in the way of airplanes. We're also going to tilt the antennas down so that you know the the uh, the uh, the emissions don't go up into the atmosphere less potential to conflict with aircraft so does that agrees, let me let me interrupt here carmi if yeah. you're li- if you're living around an airport then does that mean you'll get a service that's inferior that is the risk and that's one of the reasons why in the US uh, the big telecoms are essentially saying we understand that that's how this issue is resolved but you know what we paid $70 billion for this yeah. uh, radio spectrum, and now we're not going to be able to make our money back because we can't sell those services to people living within a couple of miles of an airport runway. That's a problem, and they're negotiating that in the U.S. now. Till those negotiations are done, the telecommunications companies have agreed they're not going to flip the on switch because they don't want to cause a problem. So is this solution an easy fix? How big a deal is this, Carmi? Or is it just, you know, two different people, two different thoughts, but the solution is easy once they come together? Yeah, we understand the technology, so fixing it technologically is fairly simple. It's just a matter of the American bureaucracies arriving at the same point as bureaucracies elsewhere, including Canada, have already arrived. So it's really more of a, of a, of a, a people issue and an organization and government issue than it is a technology issue. But yet again, the U.S. seems to always get it later than other countries do. They tend to be a follower, not a leader when it comes to things like this. That's too bad. Uh, I, I got about a minute left, Carmi. I just want to ask you your opinion on the app that Olympic athletes will be using. Uh, they have to download it to get into Beijing. I, I, from what I understand, their uh, athletes aren't even using their own, taking their own phones over there. They will be giving a device, given a device to take over so they don't get tapped into. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I've traveled to China, used technology there, and uh, also saw what what life is like there. The Chinese government um, monitors all traffic and uses it to to, to essentially spy on the lives of citizens and and visitors. We shouldn't have expected the My 2022 app for the Beijing Olympics to be any different. And so, yeah, the IOC is giving all athletes and uh, other stakeholders new phones, new SIM cards. So you'll install the app, but know full well that there will be electronic uh, spying by the government and so you'll want to minimize if you are one of those athletes or you know members of a team or whatever minimize the potential for conflict don't load uh, your social media apps or use another account so that it doesn't connect to all of your mm. existing data really do limit your exposure so that knowing full well that you are being looked over your shoulder uh, that you limit the amount of information that you're sharing with authorities when you're over there and when the athlete gets back on the plane to come back to canada they just throw it in the trash well, yeah, I mean, you do have to, like, wipe the device back to factory and all that. But, yeah, that's pretty much it. I wouldn't use it for anything else afterward. Uh, I would just go back to my usual accounts, switch all of my passwords, of course, make sure that all my security features are activated, and go back to my life. But draw a line between what you do electronically when you're in China and what you do electronically before and after. Wow. Carmi Levy with us, tech analyst and journalist, talking about 5G and airplanes and Olympic security. We'll talk more about this, Carmi. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board and making their way around the virtual roundtable is Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Welcome, table heads. Great to have you all here. Hope you're doing all well on this Wednesday, hump day, halfway there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, indeed. Hi there. It seems it seems like one of those really deep news days where there's a lot of stuff going on and not. I said to Will, Will, is there anything funny we can put on the uh, round table towards the end of this to kind of lighten it up a little bit? Uh, let's start with the poll question. Of the, thank you, crickets. Uh, poll question of the day: Tensions rising along the Ukraine-Russia border, uh, and, and you know, I guess we sort of known about this issue. It's been been progressing for a while, but then out of uh, uh, nowhere, it seems uh, we're sending a special Special force, and as well as now the question of military hardware. That was the poll question of the day. Fifty-five percent say that yes, we should send military hardware. I'm not sure how much we have to send. Uh, let's start with you, Dave. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, everything I've read about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine is that it's really one of the places in the world that actually could. Oh, we talk a lot about different places in the world and how it's dangerous, but that certain that specific situation is the one that that could be the most explosive. And I don't think uh, you know sending weapons to Ukraine would help. Um, at least not at this point. There, there's a, there are in my mind a lot of diplomatic actions that can be taken. 
but, you know, at the end of the day, there are people that are sending, uh, you know, weapons out that way. The UK said that they're sending weapons uh, to Ukraine. And, and it, it, I don't know, to me, it just it, it when you amass that kind of firepower in an area, it's never a good idea. And apparently uh, things aren't doing well for Putin domestically, and it always looks good when you uh, start the saber rattle, that's for sure. Uh, Diana, you want to weigh in this? Uh, uh, your thoughts? Should we be sending military hardware? Uh, are we vulnerable? Is democracy vulnerable and we have to do this? Well, this has always been an area, obviously, of contention. And I mean, we've, we've seen stuff happen here before that would, that has just been horrible in Ukraine, you know, given a, in the last decade, mm. um, you know, what happened in Kiev and, and, and so forth. Um, but just, again, reading up on, on what's going on, um, you know, we do know that the prime minister is going to be sending uh, the Royal Canadian Navy frigate uh, to the region. That was just announced this afternoon. So... I mean, I I kind of have to agree with Dave. I, I don't think that sending, you know, quote unquote, military hardware to the region is necessarily the best answer for this particular situation. So uh, has the pandemic uh, and I'll ask you all this, too. Has the pandemic uh, made democracy seem more vulnerable? That's why you have stuff like this going on. Are, are, are those that are perhaps not from the most democratic nations or dictatorships or, or, or what have you, uh, is demo- are they sensing that democracy is fragile now? What do you think, Dave? I, I wouldn't say so. I think that a, a lot of, uh, in, in those kinds of countries, there. I mean, there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction in all kinds of countries because of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and that always makes, you know, residents or, or people who live in those populations, you know, upset at what's going on. Uh, so maybe that has more to do with it. I don't think it has anything to do with democracy per se. Uh, Diana, uh, are we looking weak now to countries like Russia? Uh, I, I don't think that's this is anything. I don't think the pandemic has brought on anything new with regards to democracy, um, you know, and the way it's viewed in, in, in different countries across the world. I mean, this area has always had conflict, like with the Crimea and everything that happened, you know, as I mentioned, within the last decade. So I don't I don't think the pandemic has flared anything. Uh-huh. All right, this is this is pretty exciting, and uh, those of us that have been in Hamilton for any period of time, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I don't even want to mention the number of years that I've been here, uh, once and twice. Um, but it seems every time that I've come back, people always talk about uh, council and city hall and how it's one step forward and two steps back. Whether it's an LRT, whether it's a stadium, whether it's the uh, uh, the the Red Hill Creek uh, or any of these large issues. A uh, new candidate uh, announcing his race. Uh, a new candidate has come forward in Keenan Loomis, formerly of, of the chamber, of course. Is this the year that Hamilton changes its face at City Hall? Or do you think it's, yeah, we hear this all the time. And then by the time we get to the voting booth, nothing changes. Dave, we'll start with you. Uh, is this going to make things exciting, do you think? I think it's going to make things exciting, whether or not it's going to, you know, do anything at City Hall. It's it's yet to be seen. Municipal elections specifically uh the the councillors really benefit from being incumbents you go to yeah. you you go to you know vote on on election day and you see a name that you recognize and think okay i'm going to vote for that person whether or not uh you you know their policies unfortunately it's just the way of municipal politics we don't cover it nearly as much as maybe we should um we don't talk about some of the candidates as much as we should so what ends up happening is people go and vote for the person that they know so i mean it, it that's usually how things go but that being said it it'll be interesting to see who else runs for mayor we've heard a couple of names rumored i'm not going to put them out there at the moment um that it, it could be it could be a very interesting election uh and yet you know we we could see we could very well see a very similar council when uh when everything's said and done in in october Okay, Diana, is this the year Hamilton changes its face at City Hall? What do you think? Or more the same? Um, I don't think it's going to be black or white. I don't think it's going to be a complete facelift at City mm. Hall, but I don't think it's going to be a complete, you know, regression to where we've been for the last little while. I think that slowly, um, you know, changes are being made for the better to kind of freshen up things at City Hall. Um, I think that this is going to be an exciting race to see. And as Dave mentioned, obviously, there's going to be some other names that are going to be dropped in, into the hat for um, the mayor, uh, for, you know, for the uh, the mayor's 
this race. Um, I mean, I'd like to see a little bit of change at City Hall personally, just uh, with regards to maybe some some younger blood in there um, and just some more diverse voices. But I mean, yeah, it all it all depends. I don't think it's going to be black and white, but I think we're going in the right direction. Will, what are your thoughts? You going to see changes at City Hall? Uh, I think we're probably going to see something. Uh, to what degree? I'm not sure. The mayoral race is definitely shaping up to be, I think, exciting is the word we're all saying. There's the hashtag. Um, I think if we're going to see change, probably on a on on a level of councillors, there might be some shuffling around there. We already know things that have happened, but uh, we'll we'll have to wait to see. I'm going to bank on yes. I think we're going to see some changes though this year. Uh, it'll be interesting because, you know, especially with mayor, at the end of the day, it still only is one vote. There's the city councillors behind them. So it'll be fascinating to see. But uh, some of the keywords you were saying, like fresh faces and all of that, man, we've been hearing that for like 25 years. All right, table heads, thanks so much for the time. As always, much appreciated. Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard, and Will Erskine around the big round table talking about the issues of the day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, uh, we've all been following and wondering when the next shoe is going to drop in the case of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Their murder case, uh, of course, is still a mystery to many. Uh, In the Toronto Star, the headline today, Barry Sherman owed $1 billion and was not going to pay. Police documents reveal. Uh, Chief investigative reporter Kevin Donovan has been on this uh, ever since it happened and following the story closely and is with with us now kevin thank you for the time i hope you're well i am thanks for having me on uh before we get to what you've got in the uh in the toronto star today uh let's go back to the the video of the walking man did that go anywhere anything more to report on that well uh as your listeners will recall the police uh, put out this uh, release in on december 12th uh, pretty much four years to the date of the murders and uh they were hoping that somebody would have recognized this person. Uh, to my knowledge, that hasn't borne any fruit yet. Uh, but what I've learned from all these documents is that uh, the police uh, were on to this individual within about, I think, six weeks of the murders happening. They had done a video canvas. They discovered this person. Nobody seemed to know who the person was. And what I've been saying to, to the police is, hey, Maybe you should have put this out earlier when people's minds are fresher. So, so no, not, nothing yet. Mm. Lots of tips uh, to the police. Uh, I, I have had a few of them myself. People saying it's—I uh, don't mean to make light of this—but it's you know Uncle Johnny out for a walk or something like that, and they don't know who yeah. the person is. They, they think that person is the killer, and, and uh, my feeling would be is long gone. So uh, let's update this and uh, the access and the documents that you've had, the Toronto Star has had uh, to the police investigation. What can you tell us now and, and specifically about uh, he owing money? Yes, what we're getting at now after four years of fighting to get some of these documents unsealed are, are a good look at what people were saying to police in the first uh, month, uh, two months of the investigation. Uh, lots of people had theories. Uh, one of the uh, relatives of the Shermans, it's the uh, husband of, of uh, daughter Alexandra, Alexandra is Barry and Honey's uh, daughter. Uh, the husband who works for the, the family holding company said that, uh, you know, Barry said that he owed a billion dollars. Uh, this is just before the murders. He was quite quiet lately around the office, and uh, he said he wasn't going to pay it. I think part of that, maybe about half of that, are monies owed to pharmaceutical companies from from deals that uh, didn't go Barry's way. The other parts of the money, I, I don't know what that is yet. Uh, you know, Barry was a risk taker, got involved in a lot of businesses. His family wasn't that keen on, on some of his investments, but it was Barry's uh, money to, to spend, as he often told his uh, kids. And uh, so there's, there's, there's something there. The police have, have, have said uh, from the start that there is a potential financial motive. So, so I think there's something there. There's other stuff that's being revealed about uh, how the, you know the Sherman uh, family was not really a happy place uh, growing up. Apparently, was had gotten uh, had improved in the last uh, a few years, but uh, a lot of discontent in the family. And and the police are in the early days getting at that because they're wondering was this indeed a murder suicide? And and right. I've expected to find some reason that the police thought it was and nothing is, uh, has popped out yet. So it looks to me like, in my opinion, that the police really did uh, make mistakes at the start. 
Uh, we remember how this it, it did all start, and again, the and again, this was all uh, allegation, speculation at the time that it was a murder suicide. Uh, and I remember the early parts of this investigation; people people were talking about members of the family and such. Uh, now uh, it seems to have changed a little bit. Less focus on the family, more focus on his financial dealings, Barry's financial dealings, and business dealings. Is that accurate? Are we moving? in that direction because you do hear anecdotally um there were some business complications along the way well what uh i can tell you i don't think the police have moved on from from any of their theories and i I think the police actually have too many theories Uh, when i go through this process to get information unsealed uh it's up to the police and the crown attorney to tell the court that this cannot be uh unsealed because it would hurt the case and the main reason they don't want things unsealed, relates to what they call persons of interest. If the police have identified uh, person X as a person of interest, they say, we don't want that person to know. What I've, I've learned from this is that there appear to be three people. I, I, that's my assessment of the, of the 2,000 pages of documents. But it looks like there are three individuals that the police are really still think are persons of interest. Their information is, is, is pr- pretty much completely uh, sealed up still. And so I'll be back right. in court in a couple of weeks arguing to have that that opened up because I think those people do know that they are persons of interest. I actually think that, that they are not persons of interest and that the police may unfairly be targeting them. Uh, as soon as you uh, bring in the notion of financial mo- uh, motive and the fact that he owed $1 billion, I mean, that's not chump change. I mean, your imagination runs wild with this. Um, the fact that he did owe so much money, that has to play a, a prominent factor in this. Uh, does it not? Yeah, I, I think that, that that's quite possible. What we do know uh, from and from my previous reporting on this is that Barry... Uh, was experiencing some some pretty big financial pressures in the last uh, in, the, in the month or so before his death. He was asking people for for money back that he loaned them because uh, they had to make these payouts. Here we see family members saying Barry wasn't going to going to make these payouts. So yeah, I, I do think that that finances are part of it. And I think you also have to look at. I mean, Barry would often say to people in interviews, uh, including in a book in the early 2000s, uh, not my book, another book, he said, uh, you know, if somebody wants to kill me, they can get me coming out of the office at 10 o'clock at night. And so the the question is, uh, how did somebody know that he was going to be home that night? And how did somebody know that Honey was going to be home? And why kill both of them? Honey's not a part of the business. Uh, so that's another lingering question I have. Did he have business enemies? Uh, well, he did. But what I've heard from the, uh, my interviews with people in the pharmaceutical industry is, yeah, there are people in big pharma that didn't like Barry, but they sue. You know, they don't. Yeah, uh, they don't yeah, hire yeah. hire hitmen. And uh, so, so I, I've always thought that this was was not uh, nothing to do with pharmaceuticals. Barry did have a lot of other business interests, and uh, so I'm exploring a lot of those uh, as well. I mean, he, he was a he was a busy guy financially. He had probably about ten billion dollars under his asset control, and uh, so that's a, that's a lot of money, uh, certainly by anybody's standards. Kevin Donovan with us, chief investigative reporter with the Toronto Star. The latest, Barry Sherman owed $1 billion and was not going to pay police documents revealed. Kevin, uh, great reporting. Thanks so much for the time. Fascinating stuff. I think you're going to be at this for a while. You be well. Thank you. You too. Talking about Keenan Loomis stepping down uh, from his role, president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Now we know why. He has thrown his hat into the ring for the position of mayor of Hamilton. Joining us now, Keenan Loomis, president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce for a little while longer and candidate for mayor for the city of Hamilton. Uh, he is with us now. Keenan, thanks for the time and congratulations on your announcement. Thanks, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's been quite a day. How big a decision was it for you to decide to throw your hat in the ring, or is this something you've been looking at for an awfully long time and it was just all part of a plan? It's something that's been building, uh, that's for sure. I mean, you know, the 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 surest thing about today is um, knowing that my time at the chamber has come to a conclusion. Um, you know, after nine years at this amazing 176-year-old institution and having changed uh 
transformed it from top to bottom, you know, and, and having gotten through uh, COVID, hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, and, and the business community through COVID, I felt like this was the perfect time to be moving on to my next challenge. And, you know, it also happens to be a, a year of election. And I know that I have so much more to give. You know, there are so many more ways to, to serve and to have an impact on uh, my community. And I feel like if I can do uh, what I've done in the chamber and the mayor's office, uh, that will be beneficial to all Hamiltonians. To those who may not know you, tell everybody about Keenan Loomis. Uh, why should they vote for you for mayor? <laughs> well, I am a, uh, a father of three, first and foremost, uh, married to a Hamiltonian. She is why I am here and uh, how I fell in love with this community. Uh, I'm a recovering attorney, as I uh, tell everybody. Uh, I'm, I was originally born in uh, America, in the U.S., on the other side of Lake Ontario in uh, central New York, but uh, we immigrated to Canada in 1986. I went to Waterloo, which is where I met my wife, um, and then uh, went to law school in Virginia and spent five years practicing law in Washington, D.C. And, you know, why... Um, should people vote for me? Well, you know, I, I think that it's, I, I gained a huge passion for the city from the very beginning. Uh, when we arrived here in 2009, it was time to switch careers um, and decided it's time to come back to Canada uh, too. Uh, at the same time, we had had two kids at that time. We now have another one. And, you know, Hamilton to me, I could see the potential. Um, I was, I remember reading, uh, when we arrived here about this LRT and, and a stadium that was going to be on the waterfront and, yeah. and how the city had adopted this, this slogan of being the best place in Canada uh, to raise a child. And I thought, well, here we go. I, I think this is going to be the community for me to plant my flag and, and raise my children. And it's been an incredible leadership journey uh, for me uh, since that time. And, and my appreciation for the city has only grown. My love for the city has only growing. And I've had such a front row seat to all of the exciting opportunities that uh, has been presented to the city over the last decade. And I want to, you know, again, grow that sphere of, of influence and, and uh, those suite of issues uh, that need to be dealt with. And I think that I'm the right person going forward. There's a huge appetite for change in the city at this point in time. And you and I feel like I'm, I'm the right person to, to lead that change. You talked about LRT Stadium. You can throw Red Hill on there if you want. There's uh, there's it's an endless line of of issues. Um, many people have said, and you know, I've been here for many many years now, and we've been hearing uh, we're on the verge. Uh, you know, we need a change. We need fresh faces. I've been hearing it for an awfully long time. I remember actually doing a show uh, probably about 15, 16 years ago during an election, and it was anything but the incumbent. Uh, just trying to introduce people to all the other options of people who are running for council uh on the one step forward two steps back lrt stadium we've got a council uh that seems to be uh it just can't seem to move forward on these issues how are you going to deal with a council uh and, and i mean i'm sure there'll be some changes there as well but how do you deal with a council that has a record like the lrt the stadium and the red hill yeah, well, there is going to be a significant amount of change, I believe, uh, at council. So there's an opportunity mm -hmm. there. Um, again, I, I think that, you know, if uh, you look at my track record at the chamber in, in terms of reaching out to all the various uh, communities within our community um, and the various interests and bringing them all together on issues like LRT, where we joined with, you know, unions and environmental groups and, and transit user groups and uh, student unions, the anchor institutions, you name it, you know, so many people came together in uh, a coalition uh, that got us over the line on, on LRT. And I, I see that in particular, uh, you know, on, on so many challenges that we have uh, are facing right now, I, I see that the solutions are here with the people that are here. They're just not being brought together and, and coalesced um, around uh, these matters. And, and, you know, homelessness is, is one of them that's uh, right in front of us at this moment. There are groups that are trying to get things going, but they don't seem to be able to get the momentum necessary and they're they're just they're hitting roadblocks, and so you know I, I think that um, again that change at council that change in the mayor's office will will help us be able to uh, address a lot of these challenges uh, that we're facing at this point in time. 
Are you getting the feeling, uh, do you think this will inspire others to run for various levels of government? Uh, because many see things remaining the same and say, oh, you know what, I can't be bothered. It's not going to change. Nothing's moving. Yeah. Do you get the feeling that's 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 changed this time? I hope so. I mean, I, I certainly, like, today has gone uh, beyond my wildest expectations in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the sentiment that... Uh, that uh, I have garnered, and it's just incredible. Like it, it, it really does reinforce that I'm doing the right thing here on a on a day like today, when you have that outpouring of support. And you know, it's hard for for certain people to to step up. You know, it, it seems like and I said this this morning. It seems like the the uh, reward structure and the systems are uh, are in such a way that you know it's it's hard for people who uh, of integrity. Um, who want to be transparent, uh, who want to be authentic, um, non-politicians uh, to step up. And, yeah. you know, I have gotten so many people say, hey, you know, congratulations on doing that. And and a couple in particular who are inspired to to throw their hats in the ring uh, for council and in other positions. So I want to be able to prove, and I think that the, you know, the, the voters are, are thirsting for that uh, non-politician. Um, uh, and I hope that uh, we can succeed uh, in this day and age. Politics is, is a dirty sport. It always has been, but it seems like it's getting worse. And I don't want that, that to prevent me from, from stepping up and trying to contribute to my community in this way. Keenan Loomis with us, uh, president of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce for a little while yet and candidate for the mayor for the city of Hamilton in the next election. Keenan, I'm sure we'll chat again. Thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Uh, lots of chatter uh, when you're not talking about a global pandemic uh, or inflation or anything like that, the results of a global pandemic. A lot of people are talking about housing, and this is nothing new, uh, and it's been an issue that's been around for a long time as it gets harder and harder and harder uh, for those starting out to purchase their first home. Uh, the Premier and the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing hosted a provincial municipal uh, housing summit for Ontario's big city mayors and regional chairs and uh, Marianne Mead Ward. Uh, Mayor of Burlington was there and with us now. Uh, Marianne Mead Ward, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, very. Thanks for having me. Always great to have you here, and we thank you when you uh, take the time. Much, much appreciated. So your thoughts on what happened today? Uh, what are the challenges moving forward here? Oh, they're, they are myriad. Uh, where, where do you want to start? Uh, but I was really well, what, are actually... thought, what are your thoughts on, on what, we, what you saw today? I was very optimistic and very hopeful. Uh, because what we wanted to make sure is that it didn't just devolve into, uh, you know, municipalities are the problem, you're, you, you have too much red tape, or the province is the problem, you're not funding it right, or the federal government needs to get around to a housing strategy. Uh, you know, I think all of us recognize that we each have a role to play. Uh, every single one of us uh, around that table recognize that uh, we uh, we need to do our, our best and where we're not uh, up our game, uh, but that we can't do it alone. Not No one level of government is going to solve this. Uh, we each have different but complementary roles to play. And so that was, that was the key uh, message. It was four hours. We sat and talked wow. and listened with each other for four hours. And I really have to commend uh, the Premier for giving us that time, uh, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. They, uh, they took copious notes, and, uh, and they were very respectful. The entire tone and tenor of the conversation was one of, how do we, how do we solve this together? How do we come together and... Uh, have a clear-eyed, honest, uh, open look at the barriers and, and where we can contribute uh, better, uh, but also where we, what the opportunities are. So, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin. It's great to see that uh, you're optimistic about it all. What was different this time? What makes us think that we can actually make, uh, you know, provide some sort of a solution and at least move forward on this? Well, you know, I think COVID has changed a lot of things, and we've recognized yeah. that whenever there's a big issue that involves multiple levels of government, the public doesn't want to hear us uh, having a bun fight. They want us to work together. They they expect yeah. it, they demand it, and they deserve it. And so uh, I think you'll see much more of this kind of collaboration across party lines. You know, affordable housing is not a partisan issue. They don't you know, if you don't have a house, it doesn't matter what party you belong to, you, you don't have a house. And we all have to care 
uh, deeply, and we do about that. So, so uh, the issues that we face as a country, as as a province, as municipalities, are not partisan. They uh, they will require all of us uh, to to do our best. You know, uh, to to bring our best game and and leave it on the field. And and that's what you know that's what we've been doing together for two years. So it's kind of muscle memory. We we say, you know what, we know how to we know how to do this. We know how to come together and be respectful and. Uh, and be open and honest about the challenges because what's at stake is is nothing less than uh, providing a, a shelter for our community. What's more important? And there's sort of, and, and obviously there's there's many many layers to this onion, but specifically around home ownership, we know that is the best way for the average person to 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 grow wealth and and obtain wealth. How do we get there? Is this a supply and demand issue? Uh we all know that the the and you're talking about the pandemic and the effect of it, it was always about building up, not out. Uh, although we've now seen uh obviously a great demand for people who want to do just that and not necessarily go up but out. How do you find that balance? Well, we have to look at what is driving the cost up, and uh, it's partly low interest rates. It's partly uh, it's very investor driven, as you say. It's a way to safely park your wealth and count on pretty substantial returns uh, if you're lucky enough to already be in the market. And and what we what we did discuss during the summit, it was one of the points I raised, is. You know the the talk of municipalities, let's let's say giving uh, development charge breaks or or crediting, you know, not charging our usual things that we need to for infrastructure. Uh, not only will that bankrupt us, but we we can't guarantee those savings will be passed on to the home purchaser. But those homes would only be affordable once, the first time somebody buys mm. them. The second, the resale, uh, you know, all bets are off because it's it's market driven. And so we have a very heavy investor driven market right now. Yeah, there are, yeah. you know, investors buy 25, 50% of the houses before the folks who really need to be housed get a crack at it, and the price goes up. You know, we've, we've heard stories of long lineups for people waiting for that first opportunity to, to uh, enter the market yeah. on a new development, and the price goes up the, the, you know, the farther in line you are. Uh, it'll go up during the day. And, and so these are the realities of, of an investor-driven market. But we also know that a lot of people do want rental. They don't want to own a home. They they and 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 they want the freedom. Uh, it, sometimes they're downsizing, and we have a huge rental vacancy crisis and an affordability in that sector as well. So we really do need tools to deal with both. I remember being a young person and trying to find apartments and all of that sort of thing, and it seems that we just don't build them anymore, or there's no incentive for developers to build them. Uh, it, it seemed that we went from the, the home or the town home uh, right to the condominium or vice versa. Uh, how do we encourage more builders to build uh, just basic rental apartment buildings that everybody can use? And from what I remember back in the 70s, it was rent control that sort of put the, the, the brakes on all of this because it, it wasn't worth it for the, inve- uh, the investor. So how do we change that and, and allow people to build more apartments and have that as an option? Well, in, incentives have to be there, and, and, and that's because the capital return on rental is so far into the future. You have a huge capital outlay to build it, but your money trickles in uh, with rent yeah. over, you know, whether you're rent control or not, your return on investment is a much longer time horizon, and some, uh, it, the, the math doesn't work. And, and back in the mm. day, a lot of people don't know this, but rental housing stock that we have here in, in, in Burlington and many, many places was built with government credits or grants or incentives, we, we do need those back. And, and in fact, what's happening is uh, various tax tools are disincenting rental mm. unit housing because you pay double the tax rate. So, so we have in Burlington several buildings that have been built, registered as condos, single owner. Uh, in one case, it's a pension fund. So uh, definitely an investment uh, for return on their, on their investment. It's, a, it's completely about building wealth. One owner, and it's all rental. But the challenge with that, and, and the condo, uh, if you register something as a condo versus a rental building, you pay half the property taxes. So it's a great, it's mm. a great deal all the way around. And, and so, um, you know, we, we have to stop those disincentives to register something as, uh, as, a, as a rental unit because, you know, as soon as the owner decides, yeah, I'm done being in the rental business, they can sell every single one of those condo units uh, and, and the renters are out of, of their home. 
So it's, you know, we we need to look at what's happening in the market, and and one of the things that we said uh, at the summit is we we need better data, but we need a better understanding of what problem we're trying to solve, and and supply may be an issue. Uh, but if it's an investor-driven market, all you're doing is feeding the investors, and and yeah. we need to have a, a very good idea of what problem we're trying to solve and what the right levers are to do that. Great discussion, and hopefully we'll continue this. Marianne Mead Ward with us, Mayor of Burlington, talking about being at the Provincial Municipal Housing Summit today, uh, talking to everybody, including big city mayors and the premier, about this problem moving forward. Marianne Mead Ward, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck with this. Thank you. Always uh, always a pleasure, and I'll go back to taking care of my business. <laughs> there you, <laughs> there you go. It's just for you. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. And, of course, columnist for your Hamilton Spectator with us now. Thanks, Scott. Hope you're doing well. Doing just peachy, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. I wanted to ask you, uh, my wife and my uh, boy are massive Boston Bruin fans. Uh, don't ask me why, other than I think my wife likes the city. Uh, but they're diehard fans, and that's really the only games they watch when the Leafs are on. They just kind of laugh. Um, that being said, we're watching last night, and what a great presentation uh, as they retired the jersey of number 22, Willie O'Ree, and honored him. Uh, he was the first man, first black man to play in the NHL, and it was, I believe, 64 years ago uh, yesterday uh, when he actually was honored that uh, I was honored last night that uh, this all took place. What are your thoughts and, and what he has meant to the game and what an ambassador he's been? Well, what he has, he has been an ambassador for sure and a really good ambassador. Um, yeah. he's, his story is a little more, and I don't mean his personal story. I mean, his place in the sport is a little more complicated than say Jackie Robinson's sport uh, place in baseball was yeah. because while they were both trailblazers, as far as breaking the color barrier, uh, not to be insulting to Willie O'Ree, Jackie Robinson was a star player in baseball. Yeah, right. Um, Willie O'Ree was a serviceable, pretty good hockey player, good enough to play in the NHL when there were not many teams in the league. Um, that made him a pretty good player. But it's it's as I say, it's a little more, it's a little more complicated. There's nobody who doesn't look at Jackie Robinson and say at his time he was one of yeah. the very very yeah. very best players in his sport whereas and, Willie O'Ree was the sort of guy that would be called up if needed yeah and that doesn't take away from the achievement again no, it was a very small league at that time and very few players made it there and you know it's so funny that that you know of all the cities because one of the things I mean Boston fairly or not so you go back to the history of the Celtics and stuff I mean, fairly or not, Boston is often seen as the city that was not tolerant of black players in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that Willie O'Ree, that that's the city that, that had the breakthrough with a, with a first black player is sort of, I guess, ironic in a sense. But, no, look, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing that they honored him. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not one of those people who's of the opinion that, you know, you, can, you, you, you have to be the absolute best ever or we cannot recognize you and i mean this yeah. is the argument with say paul henderson in the hall of fame with you know what yeah. he did um i'm not saying paul henderson as a hockey player should be in the hall of fame but i think there should be a spot for what he did in the hall of fame and i think willie o'ree there is a certainly a spot for what he did in his career and the impact that it had that hockey should recognize and i'm glad they did and obviously as you said for years he was an ambassador and, and inspired a lot of players he did he did. You, you, you hear a lot of, and, and the um, interesting part about this, and, you know, I don't know, Scott, that 20 years ago, a lot of people would know the name Willie O'Ree, even yeah. though he had already come and gone as a hockey player. He came in, and then he became, we sort of all became, began to know him. He, it, it was brought back into the, the hockey discussion, but there were, in the meantime, a lot of young black players, while we may not have all known everything about Willie O'Ree, they did, yeah. and you yeah. hear them talk about it now, about how he was an inspiration to them and, and how he was the guy who showed that it could be done. And so, once again, I, don't, I, I think it's a really good thing that the Bruins did this, and when you say, well, does his number really deserve to be up in the rafters of the Boston Garden with Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and Ray Bork? Purely as a player, no. 
but as somebody who's inspirational and who did something that and no had an impact on the game. Yeah. yeah. And that's the same as Paul Henderson and scoring the goal. I mean, you know, how much of an impact did that have? How many times has that clip been played? That's why he deserves to be in. And, I mean, I understand the purest point of view, but at the end of the day, it's entertainment, and you're trying to expose it to as many people as possible. And I I think that's what Paul Henderson did. Well, again, I, I don't argue. I've never argued that Paul Henderson should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame as an inducted member, but I absolutely believe that mm-hmm. somehow there needs to be something in all the different halls of fame that you can find in every single major sport, five or six people who may not have had hall of fame careers, but they had a moment or yeah. did something that was so remarkable and so memorable that you say, okay, there's got to be some kind of category for that. Yeah. I don't know how you do it, but there's got to be something there for that moment. I mean, uh, another guy, I just watched a video about this guy that I had forgotten about, uh, Jim Abbott. You remember Jim Abbott? He was a baseball player. He was a pitcher no. for the Los Angeles back in the Anaheim Angels. He only had one hand. And back in 19... Yes, and then used to switch the glove over. a no-hitter. Yeah, and he would throw the he'd throw and then switch the glove to his other hand right, really quickly. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Remarkable. Yeah. And I'm looking going, okay, he was not a Hall of Fame player, but no. that was a Hall of Fame moment. And I think that every sport has a bunch of these where I don't know how you do it, but there should be something that says, yeah, your your career wasn't Babe Ruth's career. But my goodness, we got to make sure that somehow that moment is a Hall of Fame moment. And that story gets told. Good point. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, coming up moments from now right after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Dave and Diana for helping today. And as always, we leave it to you, the good listener, to have the last word. Yeah, if we've got a new mayoral candidate in the race, I mean, we can open up the debate for LRT again? No! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.